Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Wednesday, November 16th, um, and a pretty much monumental day because it's, it's a few days before your 40th birthday, Simon. It is oh, actually, yeah. It's a few back, days before. Thanks for telling everyone. But more importantly than that, or as importantly than that, is on the tape here from Reuters is a private equity fund takes 20% stake in EV data provider Benchmark Minerals. We are here in Los Angeles at the flagship Benchmark Minerals Week conference in Los Angeles. I haven't been here since 2019, um, but uh, Simon, uh, we've been trying to organize a an interview, a follow up to our interview last year, and you kept like putting it off because um, you wanted to wait, you know, for this news, which is now broken. Uh, you told me yesterday that. Uh, um, I guess it'll be official now. Uh, money hit your bank account. The headline here says private equity fund Spectrum Equity has bought a 20% stake in UK-based benchmark minerals intelligence in a deal that values the data and information provider for the electric vehicle supply chain at just under $500 million. It says terms were not disclosed, but it said 20% into $500 million. Um, uh, is this fresh equity into the company for growth or is this uh, you own 100 percent of, um, of Benchmark? So anything you could disclose about this. But first of all, congratulations. Uh, Bow down. Appreciate, you know. appreciate, thank you. <laughs> appreciate you're taking the time also yeah. to uh, to have us interview you at this time. But yeah, just um, uh, tell yeah. us about this and congratulations. I'm not good at math, so I can't do the sums. But um, but the, the, the numbers we can't I can't specifically comment on. Um, obviously, you can read what's in there. But in principle, the, uh, we've been looking for four years for a true investor that, that, that knows what we're about, a benchmark, knows what the community is about and knows where the industry is heading, right? The opportunity in this, in this battery thematic and this energy transition. So on the deal, it's, it's, a, it's a simple deal. It's, it's really fair, I think. Um, and it's 20% of the company, uh, which obviously I, I own the business benchmark, 20% of that. Um, now owned by Spectrum, and it's just an equity uh, position. They now own 20% of the business. Uh, they don't have any control over the editorial rights, but actually it's the, for us, it's, it's a perfect partner to scale sales and technology. So in terms of uh, investment in the business, actually Benchmark's always been a very profitable business, right? The hardest thing for me is, is the scaling aspect and, and, and spending money uh, properly on the right things. And I think now after nine years of Benchmark, that kind of uh, challenge changes. Uh, it's, it's a different challenge than what it was three, four years ago. So this is fresh capital going into the business that will help you grow the business? No, so that, that's actually, so the, the, the cap, there's no, at the moment, there's no capital going into the business to grow it. The business actually is, is profitable to grow itself as is. Now the question is, do we want to um, expand the plan even greater? and then put money back in? Do we want to um, look at M&A opportunities that can grow the business that way? Um, there's many options on the table and, and that's the beauty about having, you know, really world-class private equity fund um, that gets what we're about is that all those options are on the table. Okay, that's great. But uh, they just wanted a foothold in the business and they basically enabled you to monetize all your hard work over all of this year in a, in a piece. And now you have a partner and how many employees do you have now? Now just under 170. 170. Okay. Before we start today's video, we'd like to thank Lithium Royalty Corp. 
listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. We'll share more later in the video. Uh, when I saw you last year in London, you had indicated that you were going to invest a lot in technology. Um, and, and so what are the, I mean, you got Project Skyfall. If you could just, I remember meeting you in 2015. Yeah. I had one lithium client at the time. It was Western Lithium, uh, Jay Shemalaskis. Um, and he was telling me, he introduced us and said he had signed up for the benchmark, your first world tour. And he had signed up in six cities. And I remember Andy Miller, the first time I met him at the New York UBS event, you had just put out your pricing. And I was very, you know, not aggressive, but just uh, persistent, raising my hand, asking him questions. And he was like nervously answering <laughs> in a public forum. Uh, but he... Um, he uh, introduced today, and, and you had Stanley Whittingham today, and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger yesterday. You know, you have the world They're my tours. Friends. They're just my friends. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you have subscriptions. I have here like what's next for the battery bull, um, which is the the, the quarterly um, the quarterly uh, uh, magazine, and you have I think in here lithium industry needs one hundred and sixteen billion dollars in your high case. Uh, you know, and then there are a few others here, but so you have your conferences, you have your data subscriptions, you have these quarterlies. So what, what is, um, I guess, talk a little bit just about the evolution of benchmark, you know, from yeah. those first years, where you are now and where with this private equity investment and, and, you know, your future plans are. Yeah. We've known each other for so long, right? This is, yeah. uh, nine years going on 10 years next year, the, the La Decima benchmarks, La Decima 10 years, we're going to do some, uh, do some uh, fun parties next year. But um, no, the first thing, actually, what I didn't say in the last bit is with Spectrum Equity, they're, they're not investors in the battery supply chain. They're not investors in critical minerals. Uh, that's what we do at Benchmark. Um, they're actually specialists in data subscription companies. They really understand how to uh, deliver data in innovative ways to, to lots of different clients. Uh, they understand how to um, evolve sales and how we sell our products to the ever-growing community of, of the supply chain, the finance industry, and the political worlds that we sell to. Um, so for me, that's the exciting future of Benchmark. It's not touching the product. We're product guys. We're data guys. We're, we're lithium pricing guys. We're battery guys. It's not that. That's covered. It's actually delivering it in a much more efficient and effective way than we have done before. Um, and, you know, rewind back to 2015, where we came from, it was a magazine. I started in my one bedroom flat in, in Penge in Southeast London. And I did a magazine, you might remember this one, which had Elon Musk on the front cover. And it said the, the battery mega factories are coming. I we call them gigafactories now, right? But, mm -hmm. but do you remember that one? Yeah, I have it at, in my house. Yeah, I might sign it for you, actually. That'd be quite nice. <laughs> It'd be worth something now. Um, but yeah, the, the, the magazine, uh, the, the battery mega factories are coming. I write every word in that magazine. I sold 10 adverts for that magazine and that 10 adverts got us about, was it 30,000 pounds or something to, to, and that was what I used to, to start Benchmark. There was no investment. There was no money. There was no, that was just a magazine, an idea, knowledge, graft. And we grew the business. You know, we, um, uh, and Liz Eckert was first came on board, then Andy Miller, then Ben Ash, uh, then Casper Rules. And, and all of a sudden we had a, a really awesome core team that were just, traveling the world on these benchmark world tours, uh, grafting to launch. We start with a magazine. Now it's lithium prices. Now it's graphite prices. Now it's forecast databases. Then it's events. 
Um, then it's consultancy as well, advisory um, on, on where this, where to place all these billions of dollars in capital. So that was the evolution from from 2015 through to through to now, really. Mm-hmm. And I've uh, yeah been uh, enjoyed very much watching your success. We've been on the periphery participant. We've spoken a couple of times. Uh, we've had you on the podcast. Um, the Price is Right. Um, you know, using our uh, pop uh, culture references. <laughs> um, but uh, so let, let's talk a bit about that because I'm here at this conference. Like Rodney was here last year. I was not. The last time I was here with Rodney was 2019 before the pandemic. Um, and I was just reminiscing about, you know, the people that we saw there. It was like Ken Rinsden, you know, at, at Pilbara and, yeah. and Anthony C., you know, at Galaxy. These were like the spokespeople of the industry. You know, they're not here. Anthony is, but, um, you know, not in any, uh, you know, significant capacity. But who are here, you don't, you don't even have Albemarle here, but you have a lot of um, government officials. You have Exxon sponsoring for the first time, and, and they're entering you know, the lithium business uh, effectively this week. You, you have Arkansas government officials, I think, here. I think Saudi Arabia, um, lots of auto OEMs. And you also had, I missed the June conference in Washington, a very significant thing that you've done has, uh, you know, we have in America this like whole of government approach now addressing the battery supply chain. And that's a huge change from when you were testifying in front of Congress and, and gave your famous, uh, you know, bystander speech. Uh, I'll ask our editor to, uh, you know, insert this into the video. This is lithium used in the, in the battery industry. Cobalt set to go up six times. Nickel set to go up five times. And graphite anode set to go up nine times. It was really a wake-up call. You know, you turned us on to who is, you know, Lisa Murkowski, the, the senator from Alaska, and then, you know, the Democrats took over, you know, in Congress and Joe Manchin, you know, and then he was so instrumental in the bipart in the Inflation Reduction Act being passed, and then now the speculation he might run for president. Like from a Washington, D.C., from a geopolitics, you know, a made-in-China 2025 versus, you know, the ex-China world, Give us your current, you know, view on, uh, you know, where we've come and where we're going. Yeah, I, I couldn't have put all of that better than myself. Right? <laughs> really, it's the, the thing, what you just underlined there, Howard, is we, on one hand, as you heard in the previous question, Benchmark is a pricing company, a data company for all key battery raw materials and the supply chain. So we're very much embedded in the physical industry, physical contracts, uh, decisions to, to build billions of dollars of gigafactories around the world. Benchmark's really been very instrumental in that and, and helped really dictate the flow of where that kind of money is going, right? And, and those investment decisions. Uh, but for me, the, the, what makes Benchmark special is that influence factor, is the, is the influence in government that you've, um, that you've explained. And, and that all started with just me and the team going to Washington, D.C. in 2015 speaking to the USGS, building, you know, building relationships over the years. And then all of a sudden, um, thanks to Lisa Mikowski, thanks to uh, Joe Manchin, uh, this becomes geopolitical mainstream uh, with the help of COVID and supply chain disruptions, right? So my view on where, I guess, where we're heading with this is we're heading with uh, a turbocharged America. I think you've got another at least 12 months of the Inflation Reduction Act, depending on what happens at the election. Uh, that is the the providing mining mineral companies supply chain companies can fill out the the government forms correctly, and I don't mean that in a facetious way. 
I mean that in a in a, in a real way. Um, then money is there in the US to build assets here in, in, in America. We could not have seen that probably five years ago. It's changed even three years ago. Right? It's completely changed the shift of the economic access of the whole industry. And you know, regardless of what happens in the next election, that the the impact of an inflation reduction act that's lasted to two and a half years will carry the industry through to building a you know a battery economy here in the states. But the key thing for me is is investment in mining, uh, Canada, US, uh, and agreements with um, friendly countries. Um, there's, a nick, there's nickel news out with, uh, with the US government and a nickel agreement in Indonesia is, a, is an interesting example of how to slice and dice and get around certain, certain political blockers. But what you'll see is uh, the states and the US government really focusing and putting, going all in on mining of critical minerals in the States and with friendly countries. And I think that will be the mega trend of the next at least five years. Okay. Well, Jigger Shah and uh, the Loan Programs Office, we just did an interview with John Miller, which is going to come out just before this one. And um, like he has built a bank from scratch and he's going to be deploying a lot over the next year because we don't know if uh, he'll be in power or Biden will be in power after that. So we're looking, there's, you know, there's Ioneer, there's um, Lithium Americas, there's Piedmont, you know, a few others on the lithium side of that equation. Um, why don't you go ahead, Rodney? And, um, you know, there's been a lot of M&A, you know, in the lithium space in particular. Rodney, why don't you fire away with some of your questions? Sure. So, Simon, congratulations again. We've Cheers, been mate. chatting uh, for a while on that. That's really great news. Um, so in line with the conversation you've just had, I'll, I'll jump to one of the questions I've got is how long, if ever, will it take the U.S. to create a self-sufficient battery supply chain? Good question. I would like to say 10 years, but that's been optimistic, probably 15 years, I think. So you think can it can be well. done so, from, from the raw materials through the cathode, through the cells? A lot. Yeah, provide, I'm echoing what Stan Whittingham, Nobel Prize winner Stan Whittingham, uh, said on stage today just now. Providing the US can, in terms of critical minerals, the US can speak in terms of, uh, not the US, but in, in terms of North America. So the US and Canada and other neighboring or at least friendly countries that they deem friendly, Australia, Argentina. Indonesia now, um, providing the U.S. can can get around its own uh, policy quagmire to unlock these these obvious opportunities, and then I think that is the for me the key thing here, and that's and that will take. I actually I think they're okay. I think the U.S. is acting quickly on the policy. I think then it gives finance comfort. The problem with finances, if the lithium price is going down and, and, and other raw materials are going down, the sentiment in the industry slumps. Bad headlines go out about EVs slowing, and, and so the finance slows, and then we, we push the problem back into the future. But providing the finance can stay uh, stable and increasing, um, and the government can sort out its policy, which is happening, then you know, I, think that, I think this trend of critical mineral build-out will continue, push through to this decade. And then, you know, the scaling of a mine, of a plant, once it's up and running is at least two, three, 
maybe four years, right? After that. So in that 15, I'd like to say 10 years, but I'm building in five years of redundant of, of um, scaling issues that we're all familiar with, with minerals and chemicals into that as well. And I think, so you, you go into back into the 23rd, back into the 2030s, you've got scale, you've got a supply chain that is self-sufficient and you've got battery recycling, which is a key component in all of this to, uh, to underpin that sustainability. There are two things I'll just uh, comment, and, and Rodney, you can continue, but um, Stanley Whittingham made a funny quip, uh, you know, from a perspective of uh, North America and critical minerals, um, you know, it's the United States and it's uh, Canada uh, and, uh, and it's Australia. So he was, he was categorizing Australia as North America uh, because they very much, you know, not just for lithium, but in particular lithium, but other raw materials, they very much want to uh, diversify away from China. And then Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger, like I was a little bit late to uh, attend that, but you know, almost the first thing I heard was him very actively promoting the potential for lithium, you know, in the United States. But then he was like banging on, you know, the permitting, the permitting, the permitting. And he was saying like, stop talking about climate change, just talk about anti-pollution. Right. A lot of what he was talking about was branding. You managed to spend um, a few more hours with him, I think, after he presented. Do you have, uh, he's a fantastic spokesperson. Mm. He's from California. He is a Republican, but like a full-throated endorsement. I, I put out these funny videos where he has this persona called Howard Kleiner. Yeah. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Howard Kleiner. Well, Howard Good to Kleiner. see you, yeah. Uh, you know, pr promoting um, electric vehicles from a few years ago. Uh, but do you have any sense that, you know, he'll, he'll get more involved here um, in, in promoting this uh, pro-mining, you know, permitting yeah. and the necessity of that? Yeah, we, you know, spending time with Arnold Schwarzenegger, it sounds bizarre, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous <laughs> from my perspective. It's like, how, how, how ridiculous can Benchmark become uh, and this industry become when, when Arnold Schwarzenegger is on... A, the absolutely credible Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in our industry and in climate change is, is on stage talking about critical minerals, talking about lithium, talking about permitting. Um, he absolutely knows what's going on, switched on and plugged into not just what's happening, but the, the actual impact of, of the, well, the actual, the moment in time that we're in, I think, you know, um, Schwarzenegger has done it all and seen it all and lived probably three or four different lives and is, and is, and has got to the top of his game at every single one of them. But the interesting thing about, for me, about um, what Schwarzenegger did in, uh, as the governor of California was he, he began this political narrative with the work he did in, um, in California for over a 10-year period or an eight-year period. So it's, uh, so no wonder this, uh, this, this critical minerals theme, this batteries theme, this mega trend ties, you know, sets alarm bells off in his head. And I think the key thing that Arnold, speaking to Arnold about, was we want to get him more involved. Uh, we want him to speak on these issues uh, that if we're going to have an energy transition, it is mining. And we want uh, him to carry, you know, what I believe is one of the most influential voices in the world through to politics, to, mm -hmm. actually, to actually let our message that, you know, that Rodney Howard that we've been speaking about for years to let our message resonate. And, and that's really the goal. And he's well up for it. I think if the more you can do with him, he's an unbelievable salesperson. He's an unbelievable, uh, you're just human being. He's one of my favorite you know, heroes. That's just a great, amazing life story. 
And um, but to hear him just full throated saying, understanding that in America, you could have like you had the shell revolution in oil, you know, America went from import dependence to, you know, virtual, you know, oil independence in 10 years, just through significant investment in fracking, horizontal drilling, et cetera. And we have the resources here in America, but um, you need the will, you know, you need the permitting um, and, uh, but it won't all happen here. It will happen in partnership very significantly with Canada and Australia and other friendly countries. We'll see what happens with Argentina. Um, but, you know, money's being lent to Mozambique, you know, um, you know, for Syra. Um, and I, I know, you know, Piedmont and Atlantic are, are trying to do something in Ghana. Um, all right, Rodney, you uh, have more questions here. Simon, um, you guys have written quite a bit about it, this new introduction of export licenses for certain grades of graphite, uh, you know, to be exported out of China. Um, how genuine, you know, it's 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 not a it's not a ban. It's you know it's an it's export license. How genuine a threat do you think that is? Um, and what's the kind of read through? Yeah, three weeks ago, I think it was that China decided to ensure that that those exporting certain grades of graphite, including graphite used in lithium-ion batteries, now had to have an export license. I think you know from a China policy perspective, it's it's actually normal course. There's so many industrial minerals and niche minerals that have these kind of controls on it that, it, it, you know, if you're within China looking at this, it's probably not big news or they probably didn't think it would be big news. Whereas when, when you've got 95% of anode material, maybe more coming from China, you've got 70% of flake graphite coming from China, 80% of synthetic graphite coming from China, you can see how the rest of the world absolutely um, let me think of the, the <laughs> sensible language here. Um, but it terrified him. Um, that's probably more sensible. It, it instantly it terrified him. And do you know what it, it, it reminded me? And it's not like for like, but, it, but the, the sentiment reminded me of the rare earths situation back in 2011, when, when government policy, China decided to block rare earth exports to Japan, China being the, the only major producer of rare earth elements. But, but it was a political reason reasoning why they, they blocked it. So that's actually even more tit for tat and that caused chaos in rare earths. But, but it reminded people of that moment. Um, and then all of a sudden the OEMs, the battery makers that haven't been looking at graphite because there hasn't been a supply disruption, there hasn't been price spikes. Um, they're now going, we need to look at graphite. And it, it's amazing, you know, nothing happens until there's a problem and then everything happens. So that's my initial take. And, you know what, graphite hasn't had its moment in the sun in the 10 years that this, this global battery arms race has been going on. Uh, but this is its moment now. You started in graphite, right? Before you started Benchmark and you were at Fast Markets called Industrial Minerals. So you have, you know, everything started with graphite for you. Yeah, yeah, good point. It did. But Benchmark's first product after the magazine was a graphite price assessment assessment was graphite, right? That was what I did. That was my kind of specialist subject. So it's it's good for it's whilst good is a is a term but for me seeing graphite being talked about in, in detail outside of the industry now is um is a really interesting moment you know we've discussed the us and and looking at a complete supply chain if we look across to australia we've seen numerous m a deals go down literally with albemarle being scuppered in lion town but 
Minres and Hancock stepping in and, and really um, claiming their local turf. But I've seen various things mooted, but how far down the, the value chain do you think the Oz players can go? Will it stop at an intermediate product? You know, or will there be more converters built? I know there's plans of expansion, but it, you know, the, the, the actual number and cost of CapEx per ton has been higher than expected. So can Oz go beyond with intermediate products and then converters and then go down cathode and battery facilities? Do you think that's a reality for them? Will they need massive subsidies? Do you think that's realistic for them or, or will it stop? at um at the chemical level yeah i've thought about this quite a bit um australia can do anything it wants right like the the the, the skills the ingenuity there the uh, as a mining and minerals and chemicals um because um or mining and minerals at least focused uh country it can do anything it wants but but i've always thought that if you do do one or two things and do them really well and scale them if you've got the resources if you've got the know-how, um, if you've got the therefore experience, and you've got the ambition, then become the world's, which it has on lithium, of course, but become the world's leading supplier of, of raw materials is step one, of course, the mining side, but, but, but speciality chemicals. There's no reason why Australia couldn't, can't value add there into chemicals. And, and, then, and then maybe cathodes, um, if it makes sense, and supply the energy revolution around the world, not just China, of course. Um, I think going any further downstream, really in Australia, shipping batteries doesn't make any sense to, unless there's reasonable production of, of EVs and, and energy storage in, in Australia, energy storage is a maybe, you're not going to be making loads of batteries in Australia and shipping them around the world. It's just logistically not possible um, or not, not economically possible. Uh, sensible, if you like, but I, I think Australia, anywhere from the the mining through to the cathode or anode, is is a great opportunity uh, for for the country. But not everyone's, you know, if you're a major spodumene miner in Australia, it might be too difficult to build a refinery, a hydroxide facility. Let's say, as we've seen the delays on on the two hydroxide facilities there, it might be. Um, maybe is it sensible? Do you build a hydroxide facility in in the USA? As a joint venture, do you actually do you actually stick to mining, refining, and, and upstream chemicals in Australia, and then and then do JV um, downstream plants in other countries and, and tie up the supply chains there? I think actually the, that latter part is probably the direction Australia should go, and probably will go. Yeah, great. And just just on the M and A, the prices have you know risen and jumped up in the last couple of days, but. Earlier in the week, when I drafted the questions, if you gave a fair multiple to the two other businesses, Albemarle's lithium business on its own was trading at like under a $10 billion valuation. So if you think about what their production profile is and earnings, you know, is there a chance the hunter could become the hunted? Those are the sort of valuations I would think that would start to get some of the major mining houses interested if you if you think about it where it's come from um you know that's was nearly a third of the high um you know at what point even though we're seeing falling spot prices in china do does m a on, on a major scale become appealing 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I like that phrase, the hunter become the hunted, is, is a, I think it's a really apt phrase. Um, uh, you know, that's the, the ebbs and flows of a, an industry that's scaling of, a, of a, a, let's say, a stock market that's probably disconnected a little bit or its own world, because I'm not from the finance world, so I don't look at stock prices. I mean, we can't invest at benchmarks. So we, we, that's, that's what you guys do. It's never what we do. Um, but from a, yeah, from a perspective that, that I think now from a, from a buyer's perspective, let's say big mining companies, big petrochemical companies coming in, um, ExxonMobil announcing their, their, their intentions on lithium with, with extremely deep pockets. Um, I think the, looking at it from their perspective and the fact that the government will is there, I do think now this, this next low price environment that we're in and that will probably this for lithium, for nickel, um, especially, I think the low price environment is going to last what 18 months or so. It's just a, a, a kind of the, the, the next phase of the EV scaling begins. If you like, I think, I think everything's up for grabs. I think now that the, the big companies are convinced that this battery story is scaling, that lithium is now roughly a million tons LCE a year and growing quickly, regardless of the, the price falling, that battery prices are now come down to under a hundred dollars a kilowatt hour because the lithium price is lower. I think all these things just, just from a, a corporate, a major corporate perspective is game on pedal to the metal. And I think that whilst, it, whilst the headlines might be bad for EVs at the moment and raw material prices, I think the big guys are sensing 18 months. You've got an 18 month window to get something done here. You've added, you tweeted, and I mentioned your tweet, you said nine months, you know, now you're saying 18 months. Uh, I can't remember what the tweet was. And, uh, <laughs> and I might've been jet lagged and it might be, it might be not. Right, but the way I view it is if you look at just from if you if, even if you don't know anything about lithium and you look at the lithium price uh, ebbs and flows of which lithium price for me is the is the bellwether of this whole story. I look at the ebbs and flows of the price. The, the, the two key things that stand out are they the prices have become um, the highs have become higher. The lows, I think it's an artificial low at the moment because. You know, from a lithium perspective, you need the price to be higher to bring on new supply. It's just um, basic economics. But, but I think that the, the gaps between price spikes and price lows are becoming shorter. So previously it was what, three years, maybe three and a half years gap. Um, then the price surged for two and a half years. Now the price is falling. I think the, the, I think the EV sentiment will last nine months. I think the lithium price flow will maybe last 12 to 18 months. But after that, 2026, it's, it's phase or end of 2025, it's phase two of this EV scaling. And that's when it gets serious. To your point, Rodney, you know, I think Exxon is sponsoring this event. Exxon made this announcement. There was not a lot of detail in that announcement. And then there was a Reuters article which said they hadn't even yet picked their DLE provider um, and they haven't made a final investment decision. But if you did the math, I think Cowan came up with a million cars, you know, in 2030, that kind of translates into probably 40 to 50,000 tons as an aspiration for what they're going to do. And if you look at Standard Lithium's PFS, that's probably like a $2 billion investment. So it looks like they're serious, but still not so much. But if they were really serious, my takeaway is if they were really serious, rather than a mining company buying Albemarle, you know, Exxon should buy Albemarle, right? If they're buying Pioneer to get more, you know, oil reserves, um, 
you know, figuring out the smack over, you know, they need chemists. So we had, I always referenced Garrett fueling, um, you know, who basically, you know, told us that like fossil fuels, you know, the oil industry, that that's organic chemistry, you know, lithium is inorganic chemistry and inorganic chemistry is not for sissies. Right. So <laughs> big oil has a lot of chemist. Yeah. You could build a petrochemical refinery, but the skills that are within Albemarle, I think, would be highly complementary to the skills that, uh, you know, Exxon, you know, would need. So that would be my bet if they were really serious. I, I, I think it's more likely or it would be smarter for a big, you know, oil chemical company to be buying an Albemarle than it would be a big mining company. But, you know, to be seen at the current valuations of Albemarle, they're no longer trading at these double digit multiples. It would be highly accretive. Um, Whereas in previous years, the, the multiple mismatch w would have made it, you know, too dilutive. But my two cents so on just to go your back, question. Right. Just to go back, uh, Salman, on the, on the pricing things. Funny you should say that because one of the questions I have is we don't think an Albemarle agrees that the price is too low for reinvestment economics at these levels. So my, my question is, we agree with that, but... <clears throat> How seriously do you take the risk or is there a risk that, you know, African material coming online, et cetera, can, can keep, you know, prices, um, you know, deflated for an extended period of time or is, you know, the reinvestment economics, our theory of it, of it being too low legit and, and, you know, we'll see, we're going to need to see, you know, High prices cure high prices, low prices cure low prices. We're setting ourselves up again for another another rally at some point in the future. Yeah, I. Well, you're right. We're, we're setting ourselves up for being in the same position we have in the last sort of three four years, which is playing catch up on on supply. And, um, the the yeah the prices are far too low. I completely. I, I think you know the the. Price from an end user perspective that I've always felt over the last three years, um, you know, being in this industry, is with battery makers and OEMs, when the, when the lithium prices are sky high, they were happy with, you know, sensibly, we've got to keep it between 30 and $40, uh, long-term average, and, and we can scale our ambitions and, and do our thing. Um, of course, the price was triple that uh, at the time and um, double to triple that at the time. And now it's way below that, but but I think overall, uh, the, the the you know price mechanisms I think need, need to change as well and evolve. Of course, benchmarks are, are PRA, um, setting a lithium industry's reference price, and it depends what price you want to use. Right? Do you want to use the domestic China price? Do you actually want to use the global weighted average the benchmark produces, which actually is a more sensible kind of weighted price for for lithium that's traded around the world? Um, I think, you know, contracts and companies and, and certainly the, the lithium supply, uh, supply side still need to work out what they want to do um, because it's all still quite, quite new for them using this market pricing. It's great for benchmark, but it's, um, it's, it's new for them. So I think that once a, a proper me mechanism sorted, once uh, physical platforms to trade this material sorted to help uh, alleviate issues, then, then you have a more mature lithium industry. Until that point, I still think you've got another three years of chaos. And, um, it, you know, it's, we're, not, we're not done yet. Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about Lithium Royalty Corp. 
Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, lower-cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. Simon, does Benchmark see any demand destruction in EVs, ESS, or any other sectors? Demand destruction in a sense that, that um, not enough batteries being available to, to hit demand or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the way I view kind of, I guess, phrase demand destruction or, or yeah, risks to to demand is. This is where the EV industry is at the moment, actually, is is that you, you had the last two years of downstream EV makers getting excited by, especially here in the US, getting excited by politics, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, and announcing really aggressive uh, production numbers, future production numbers for pure EVs. And the reality is that, that the numbers are so bullish that the industry would never have time to play catch up in a, in a five-year period to make enough batteries, or you might be able to make the batteries, but you won't have the critical mineral supply to go into them. And for me, the, whilst it looks like there's probably a bit of demand destruction going on because forecast numbers by the end of the decade for EVs are being revised downwards, um, it, for me, it was always demand that was never going to be fulfilled in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at, take our lithium forecast numbers that we looked at. I looked at this about three months ago when I was trying to do a presentation. And I'm like, our demand number for lithium was, uh, I think actually Rodney tweeted about it, or you, you guys tweeted about it. It made me think about, but, you know, our forecasts becoming irrelevant because, because lithium was like 5.3 million tons or something uh, for, from a benchmark forecast from a demand perspective by 2030. The industry in a realistic level is only going to get to something like, and I, I, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, 2.3 million tons. It was like a, a, a delta of, of half, 50%. Or 50% yeah. yeah, I was going to say 100% then. So Antonio <laughs> wasn't good at maths. A delta of 50%, and that means there's a disconnect with the whole thing. Um, uh, something's gone wrong. And I think now the, 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 e, the bad EV headlines you're seeing, the, the bad lithium headlines you're seeing, isn't because of demand growth in the industry that's still going through the roof. It's just because everyone got a little excited after COVID, and now they're just walking back a bit to what we think is a sensible, more rational um, viewpoint. Okay. I think Almo still has north of 3 million tons or 3.4 million tons. Um, and they, they just keep reiterating that, but they have uh, indicated in their most recent presentation, they looked at inventories at a cathode level, at a converter level, and uh, at a trading level. They didn't say anything from a battery level, but uh, so just going back to, um, I asked this of John Miller as well. I mean, you're not American, but you definitely follow American politics closely. Build back better Biden. You know, he really, this deal that he cut with Manchin, 11th hour, like nobody expected it really put a fire under the butt of, you know, the U.S. kind of catching up above and beyond any expectation you might have had for in any of the times of the last kind of couple of years. But we're going to have an election in a year's time polling shows that like Trump would beat, you know, Biden at the moment. 
whether or not that happens, whether or not Biden or the Democrats are in power, if the Republicans are in power, what do you think happens in America? Do you think that we've we've passed the tipping point here, or you know, from the EV take up on the S curve, you know, or, or is you know, is there some risk that it could be slowed down significantly just based on policy, government policy? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that that we're past, or to use an American phrase, I guess we've crossed that Rubicon, and uh, I, I think it doesn't matter what who's in in power in the US next October, I think. No, next November, actually. 5th of November. No, that's the election, but he'll be in power, he or she will be in power in January January, January 2025. Yeah. Um, Whoever, I think it doesn't matter anymore. I think, you know, what it affects is how much money is giving away in the Inflation Reduction Act. Of course, Republican, um, I was speaking to ex-Speaker of the House about this, what's that? Paul Ryan about this. And uh, it gave some really interesting perspective. And he was just saying that, you know, the money that's been handed, and this is basic knowledge for me, so forgive me if you do understand uh, politics better than me, but the, the inflation reduction money that's been handed out now and will be, in the, obviously, until, until if an administration changes, can't be taken back, right? That money's there, it's being invested, it's building a battery supply chain, and a lot of it's already gone out into the market at the moment. Enough to actually create m- momentum for new money then, let's call it non-inflation Redu- reduction act money, to come in behind it. So that shift, the shift in story and narrative that we were waiting on for so many years in the US um, has already happened now, thanks to Joe Manchin and thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. So I don't, I don't worry about uh, whoever's in power. The, the, the damage, the good damage, if you like, has been done. You think Joe Manchin's going to run for president? Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's looking likely he will run for president. I think it's quite exciting, but I, I don't know. He hasn't told me that. And, and I spoke to him on stage at DC and asked him the question. Um, and uh, he didn't say no, did he? Were you there in DC? No, I wasn't, oh, but okay. he's never, he's been very coy about it, but you're closer to him than I am. But, you know, you never know. But uh, I'm, uh, he, he, he and Murkowski and that, um, the Energy and Resources Committee oh, has yeah. been like the most bipartisan committee, just like for, for what America needs in this non kind of tribal polarization. Great. He, he and that committee is reflective of what like U.S. policy should be. And the fact that he did cut a deal to get the inflation, he, he was the swing vote. He used his power as, you know, in a very divided Senate, you know, as a moderate Democrat to get stuff done. And this is the, the, the this is industrial policy in the United States for yeah. sure. It's imperfect, but um, he single-handedly made it happen. So if he were president, I think not only could we have this bringing together of, of the middle, but, you know, just a further advancements of sensible policies because he understands permitting, but he understands EV. And he, and he made sure like the policies, the Build Back Better Biden policy, he curtailed significantly. They would have been like subsidizing $100,000 SUVs yeah. for, um, you know, people making a million dollars a year, right? Like he said, no, we've got to make this, you know, for affordable, for people who actually, you know, can't otherwise afford it. But he also insisted on the mineral and battery content to make yeah. it ex-China, right? Because he's very in tune with the geopolitics of it. Yeah. You know, I, I think he's great. And um, I saw the first thing he did was put his arm around kind of like Mitt Romney, 
a Republican. And uh, I saw Jay Cal, Jay Calacanis from the, uh, the All In Pod, you know, basically said that he put his arm around saying, OK, let's address the budget. Yeah. Um, but th- this idea of a, a Democrat Republican bringing, you know, moderates coming together, I think could be a, you know, it would be an amazing thing. But anyway, that's just my view as a middle middle of the road. You know, I'm not a Democrat, not a Republican, but just want sensible kind of middle of the road policy. For years, we've had such problem, right? You know, I think there's a lot of potential in Mansion, but but will the political system like enable it to happen? Even if it's sensible, it's very difficult. Yeah, Um, I'm not. It's interesting. I'm not sure how. I don't know the mechanics of politics that actually how how will Joe Manchin actually become president because he would run as an independent or would he go against would he be a Democrat? Yeah, it, 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 it's a question, but the answer from John Miller seemed to be that he would do it as an independent under possibly this no labels party. But to be seen, this is going to be a topic I think we're going to be talking a lot about in in the yeah. weeks and, and months to come. And, and, and just a point actually on on, on Joe Manchin and, and Lisa Mikowski that. They have been the, as you said rightly, Howard, they've been the, the most instrumental uh, senators uh, in this critical minerals and, and battery movement over the past eight years, which has been as long as this, this thematic, if you like, has been going on. And, um, and they've been a, a model of how politics should work. Right? I think Joe Manchin gets a lot of criticism, why well, every politician gets a lot of criticism, I think, because coming from a coal state. But, but for me, Joe Manchin is a mining guy, right? He gets that everything starts in the ground. He gets, uh, he's a future facing guy. So he gets what's, he understands what's coming in terms of technologies. Um, but he's trying to get the best deal for his state, right? Which is his job. So um, I think if the more Joe Manchin is involved in the highest level of US politics, the US will be better for it. Mm-hmm. And enlist, get him to enlist uh, Arnold in some capacity, either either as the VP or as, uh, you know, Department of Interior or some some significant role. But anyway, to be continued, uh, I guess the final question is, there's this bifurcation, like the conversion capacity, the capital intensity of conversion is so cheap and the skills, you know, are in China. So like Albemarle, you know, Livent, they're still building lots and lots and lots in China. And the price of these things have gone up, the costs, the capital costs have gone up so much ex-China. Um, do you think that Western OEMs, you, you know, w- w- where are we on the, um, you know, maybe a bifurcation of pricing, you know, in, in, in the separate markets? Because left to their own devices, Alma has to look after their shareholders. And yes, it's not their job to be, you know, America for America's sake. Um, they've got to go where, where the costs are lower. But, but like, how, how do you see that, that evolving? Do you see different pricing in different markets? for the same materials? It, it's a really hard question that because I think that, that, you know, the problem you've got is over the next five years, let's say, whilst a, a new supply chain gets built out regionally. And then you'll always have this global base of supply coming from China, coming from the existing mine in South America, around the world for, for lithium, for example. So I've always viewed it as a, a, you've got a base level of global supply and the supply chains that already exist. But then on top of that, you've got regional um, supply. So I can, I can see a bifurcation of prices. I think it will just complicate what is an already complex story and we need simplification in lithium. And so maybe what you have is actually there's, that, there's this global price, which is, a, which is a, a, maybe a, 
a lower price and then you have regional premiums mm -hmm. on, on that price, like a, a USA premium or an ESG premium or something like this. And, and that's actually something that Benchmark is working on in its pricing division at present is, okay, what is the reflective true price of, of lithium? This is the one thing that we always try to put out in our data um, as uh, independent price assess assessors. And then what's the true reflective price? which is why I really like our global weighted average. I've never liked the China price because it's so volatile. And then on top of that, what's the regional premiums that allow for a supply chain to build in the United States? And I think that's a much more sensible way of, of doing it. The problem is, as you say, all these lithium companies, lithium producers are public companies. Mm -hmm. So you are very restrictive on what pricing strategy, especially you can deploy. And right now the biggest demand is in China. Okay, great. Uh, congratulations once again right. to, uh, you know, the uh, $100 million man. Um, I don't know, 500 million, whatever it was, but uh, it, 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 it's great to watch entrepreneurs. We've watched a lot of micro cap companies from like Lithium Americas to Piedmont to now Winsome Resources and, and others grow from very small to, uh, you know, to, to unicorns. Yeah, the final question I was thinking about, um, you know, Elon Musk has basically said, you know, please, entrepreneurs, you know, get into the refining, not the mining industry. Do you have a view on mining versus refining? And with this windfall now, might you, you know, just where are their software margins in, in benchmark, you know, publishing, right? Or in mining or refining, what would you choose? Uh, well, actually, I, I, I would choose to go and sit on a beach for about six months, I think. Is, is, um, uh, no, to answer your question, I'm focused on benchmark. I, of course, I, but, but, you know, from an investment perspective, uh, I actually I, I don't disagree with Elon because it's too, I'm too scared to. But I think, I think when he said the money's in the refining, I, I agree in, in the United States that refining capacity is the bottleneck, right, for sure. But if you're mining raw material, you've and you're you're mining it at scale, so you're not a small fringe producer, but you can actually be a part of the you know the seventy percent of the, the the pie. Then you've got everything in your hands, right? If you own the refining in addition to the mining, you own the gateway to the entire supply chain. And so I I've always loved the the speciality chemicals nature of of lithium and and of graphite. It's not a chemical, but it's a speciality mineral in that sense where it's the the, ref, the refining of it is quite technical. And therefore, for me, the mines and refineries or chemical plants um, or processing plants should go hand in hand. If you own both, you own the gateway to the supply chain. And, and for me, that's that's I think always the strongest strategy. So it's still your view that the auto OEMs have to become miners. Yeah, I don't mean them physically, the CEOs physically getting a, a, a shovel out and a pickaxe. <laughs> but what I mean is, I, I think, you know, they should be mine, like 30 40% shareholders in mining companies. Okay. GM's doing that with uh, Lithium Americas, exactly. and hopefully Tesla will start writing checks for equity. Um, uh, Ford wrote debt checks into Liontown, but they got paid back. But um, actually getting their hands dirty, follow, you know, Arnold, um, it, 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 you know, lead by example. It's not a dirty industry. It's an essential uh, industry, and, and hopefully they'll take that on board. Okay, great. Thank you very much again, Simon. Wonderful to have you uh, here. Thanks for having, you know, me here at, uh, at the Benchmark event. And uh, to be continued. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Rodney. You guys do a great job. Love it.